John chapter 13, verse 30, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. First John, chapter two, verse seven. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your great word. We thank you that your son proclaimed your glory through his deeds and actions upon the cross. We ask you, Lord, that you would come by your Holy Spirit right now and come and minister among us, that your word would gain ground in each of our hearts, that you would cause your word to gain entry into us, that you would draw people to yourself, and that those who you've drawn to yourself already, you would once again show Christ to them and, and present him as the supreme sacrifice for sin. We pray, Lord, that you would glorify your name in this service. We pray that you would be exalted and that we would be captivated with who you are and that that would translate for us into loving our brothers and our sisters. Help us, Lord, to love from the heart, even as you loved. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So I want to encourage you that this is a season of Easter. We have not just celebrated Easter. We get very excited for Easter Day, of course. We attend well. We love well. We do fun things with eggs and parties and desserts. But this is actually a season. It's not just a day. And in fact, most Christians throughout the centuries have recognized that the season of Easter is actually the season of all of the Christian life. Every Lord's Day, we proclaim His resurrection. That's why the Lord's Day takes place on Sunday, not on Friday. 
The Lord's Day is a commemoration of his death, and by that we connect it to his resurrection. It is not that we just celebrate his resurrection with joy on Easter Sunday and then kind of dwindle until the next time we come around on the calendar. No, the entire season of Easter, all six weeks, are given to us to commemorate the deeds of Christ and his teachings to the disciples and to reinterpret what he has said through the lens of the resurrection. After his resurrection, the disciples, by the Holy Spirit, began to understand what Jesus had already said in his ministry in the light of the resurrection. Throughout his gospel, like a master narrator, John is interrupting at periodic points in his gospel, highlighting how the resurrection has changed their experience of his public ministry. John is saying in his gospel that as the disciples experienced the Lord Jesus' person, work, and teachings, they did not fully understand what he said until he had been resurrected. One chief example was in Jesus' prophecy of his own resurrection in the word play of the tearing down of the temple. In John 2, Jesus said that concerning the temple, that he would have his own temple torn down and raise it up for three, in three days. Everyone who heard him that day was confused. But then John says in John 2, he interjects into the middle of the story something that happened after the story. It, said, it says in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Another exquisite example was how the disciples missed the importance of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In John 12, John again breaks in in verse 16, and he says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. That right there is a perfect example of the criterion of embarrassment. That is, you would never pen a gospel hoping to promulgate a religion and say, oh, we didn't get it when it happened. All the disciples, the apostles, the ones who were supposed to speak for the Lord, they didn't understand what the Lord did. He says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and him but and had been done to, to him. Just as with the disciples, so it should be with us. The reason the season of Easter is given to us is that we would remember God's words afresh and that we would remember them and listen to them again in the light of what Christ has done. Perhaps the most common command in all of Scripture is to listen to the Lord's words. And the next most common command, perhaps more common than that, is to remember. We often do not need to get more information. We need to remember what the Lord's word has said to us. And we need to remember in such a way as to re-experience it. Andy mentioned during his hour this morning that, that there was an aspect of prayer that was so fresh when we were first believers, wasn't there? And, and sometimes we dwindle in our understanding. And so we come to this passage today with the exact same problem. We must remember God's words afresh. We become familiar with God's word, and because we are familiar with God's word, the impact of God's word is stifled. It's stifled because we think we've already heard it. We think we're already walking in that truth, and yet God's word calls us to examine at a deeper level, day by day, who we are in the light of Christ. 
We must remember God's words. And in the very same way, after prophesying his own death and resurrection, Jesus calls his disciples to hear the old commandment, to love one's neighbor, as a new commandment. That's what today's message is about, is the new commandment of Jesus Christ and how it actually is the old commandment. But we must hear it in a new way. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another in a new way. Not just a new specification, it's not a new commandment in the fulfillment of the commandment, but it's a new commandment in its essence and in the example that he set forth. As human beings, even though we are saints, we need to be constantly reminded of his amazing love for us. We need to be reminded of the significance of what Jesus did on the cross. None of us would say that we forget what the cross means, but the impact of the cross is often forgotten. We don't really fully know what we were forgiven when Christ took on our sin and shame. Brothers and sisters, he has defeated death, but he also has defeated the massive guilt and shame that were due. I was listening to a sermon last night, as I like to do if I have the time, to prepare for the Lord's Day. And one of the things that the preacher mentioned in that sermon was that the new creation in Christ is a recognition that as you behold the cross, that you are dying there. It is a spiritual perception that Christ's death on your behalf means that you have died. My life is hidden with Christ and God. I've been crucified with Christ. And not only are you alive, or not only have you died, but now by the resurrection of Christ, you are alive again. He takes on my guilt and shame. He takes on the sentence of my punishment, defeats that sentence, bears the wrath that God has placed upon those who rebel against him, and then defeats my death. He encounters my death, defeats my death, and comes back with everlasting life. We, therefore, need to constantly be refreshed in our understanding and in our obedience of loving others with the love that we've received from God. All obedience of God's commandments to love one another flow from receiving His love. And unless we are so captivated and motivated by that love, we can never truly love from the heart our neighbors. In ourselves, we don't love others. And therefore, even if we didn't have this problem of sin, God himself is the source of all love in in Christian theology. God is love. He is the source of all life. We, his creatures, are not the source of love. Even if we did not have ongoing sin to fight and a war against the flesh to wage, we would still need to receive the God who is love before we could love those around us. Without God transforming us by His Holy Spirit through His Word, we can never be the church. Our church has a wonderful teaching that my father put in place as one of the foundations of our church culture early on was a system called the Three Tools of Grace. And it's a way of thinking about the way that God's grace comes to you. It comes to you through His Word, by His Spirit, in the church. And those three things are harmonious. 
But we are supposed to be the church even as we are in the church. And my call to you this morning is, unless you receive the love of God as shown in the Scripture and mediated by the Holy Spirit, you can neither be in His church in harmony, nor can you be a part of His church witnessing to the world around us. So to that end, I want to look at this passage in three ideas, both John's gospel and John's epistle, and then finally, some clear applications. First, I want to look at how did Jesus glorify the Father in the cross? And likewise, how did the Father glorify the Son in the cross? And this theology of glory, what does it mean for the Christian life? Then I want to look at how Jesus gives the new commandment, how it's a new commandment, and what he means by calling it a new commandment. I want to look at John's reminder or reiteration of that commandment in his epistle and then the examination that he gives his readers to see whether they are actually in that new commandment. And then finally, some questions about what it means to love our brothers from the heart. Just before Jesus prophesies his death and resurrection, Judas departs from the room. If you aren't familiar with John 13, it is the scene that begins the upper room discourse narrative in John's gospel. It is perhaps one of my favorite places in John's gospel. There are an amazing number of significant things in John 13. Entire sermon series have taken place in John 13. One of my favorites is Sinclair Ferguson on the upper room discourse. If you ever have time to listen to sermon series, I highly recommend it. It is one of the best treatments because Sinclair Ferguson is examining the heart of Christ even as he is sharing with his disciples while Judas is in the room. But notice at this place, when we come to this place in John 13, Judas has left the room immediately before this. Jesus said just prior to this that one of them would betray him and each one of the disciples thought it was him. He thought it was himself. They didn't think it was Judas. They didn't recognize that it would be Judas. And yet, Judas breaks company to hand the Lord Jesus over to the Jews. As soon as he departed, John records some of the most chilling words in his entire gospel, especially when seen in the context of the motif, the grand, the grand idea in John's gospel that Jesus was the light of the world, and he came into a dark world Jesus said, we will do the works of the Father while there is still light, but night is coming in which no one can work. It says right prior to this in John's gospel, after after Judas leaves the room, it says, and it was night. We have just changed from a wonderful scene of Jesus with the disciples sharing a meal, knowing what will take place, and then John signals to us, the readers, there's a change. This is the fulcrum of of John's gospel. Everything from this point forward is moving to the cross. Verse 31 says, therefore, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus uses the term glorified to refer to his trial, crucifixion, suffering, and death. This was what I mean by our over-familiarity with the text, as I mentioned in my introduction. For those who are familiar with this, it's far too easy for us to simply equate glorified with crucified. Oh yeah, we know this trick. Okay, when John says glorified, we read crucified. 
We, we kind of treat it like this little cipher or a code. Have you ever had a decoder ring? Uh, years ago, that used to be a treat in a cereal box, so I've been told. Uh, I never experienced that. But a decoder ring is essentially this little way of translating characters. For example, if you had an off-by-one code, A would be B and B would be C. And so you'd write a little letter and no one who didn't know the code would be able to read it. We do that with this term in John's gospel. We hear John's gospel, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and we think, oh, he's going to the cross. But to do this, to quickly just swap these out, we are missing the entire point of what John is saying, or rather what Jesus is saying and John's faithfully recording. The cross was the most horrendous thing to have ever happened in the history of the world. I want you to think about this. What sin could there be greater than the crucifixion and murder of the only innocent person who ever lived, much less God in the flesh? Commonly, in evangelistic scenarios, apologists are presented with a question, why do good things happen to bad people? And I'm stealing a quote from somebody, but I don't remember who it is. But the point is, brothers and sisters, that has only ever happened to one time, in one time, to one person, and it happened to Jesus. Good things do not happen to bad people, and likewise, bad things happen to bad people. This is the first time something bad has happened to a good person. In the sufferings and crucifixion of Christ, the only sinless man, the incarnate Son of God, was abandoned by his disciples, rejected by his nation, denied by Pilate, who was supposed to uphold God's justice, and was crucified by Roman soldiers. He was scourged Do you know why we use that word? Because there's no other word like it in modern parlance. It's not a modern word. It's an old word. We don't have a lot of scourgings these days. The Romans took a special whip designed to extract flesh from the Lord Jesus Christ. And they beat him to the point of near death before they crucified him. That is the worst thing that has ever happened. And we have to hear what Jesus means when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified in that context. Hearing it in that context, we have to ask the question, how can Jesus possibly say, now is the Son of Man glorified? What does it possibly mean for Jesus to be glorified when he's referring to his horrible death? At Judas' departure, Jesus declared that a chain of events was in motion that would end in the most glorious moment in all of history. Jesus is able to say, when Judas departs, now is the Son of Man glorified. God's will to work in and through the sufferings of Christ was so clearly known by Jesus that he can say, before he's even apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, now I am glorified. Past tense, glorified. On the day of Pentecost, Peter declared before all of Jerusalem that Jesus was, quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Through the cross, the glory of the Son of God was on full display, not just what took place in the natural realm, but what God was doing through that and what the Son of God was doing in His obedience The glory of the Son of God was captured by the psalmist years ago and then re-explained by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 10, 
5 through 7, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Christ speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. That's the glory of the Son of God as he goes to the cross. The glory of the Son of God as he goes to the cross is not what took place in the natural, visible, external realm, but the secret and hidden glorious obedience of Jesus the Son as he submits himself to the Father's will. The Son's glory was on display in his obedience, which in turn gave glory to the Father. Jesus glorified himself by obeying, and in obeying the Father, he made the Father look glorious. Though Adam had failed to obey God's will, Christ willingly obeyed God's will. There's a debate raging in evangelical theology right now, the nature of the Son's obedience to the Father and the nature of the Son's role to the Father and whether or not within God there is a hierarchy and whether that hierarchy implies an eternal subjection of the Son. And brothers and sisters, it is too high of an idea to get into today, but what I want to impress upon you is clearly, as a man, the Son of God submitted His will to the Father on the earth. That unlike Adam, who rejected God's will in the garden, Jesus submits His will to the Father's will, such that He is doing the Father's will from His heart. This is the nature of our Messiah. He is so morally pure that he loves the Father and wants to do the Father's will. Christ did not merely externally obey the letter of the law, so to speak, but he went to the cross forgiving his captors and displaying the nature of the Father. This is what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, "'If you have seen me, you have seen the Father.'" And likewise, as he's going to the cross, Jesus is glorifying the Father because he's saying to the world through his actions, not only is God worthy of obeying even though it cost my life, he also, by forgiving his captors and praying for them and, and receiving the, the, the criminal who was crucified with him into paradise, he is displaying for the entire world to see, this is how God forgives sinners. He takes on their guilt himself. That's why Jesus is glorifying the Father. Jesus' desire to fulfill the will of the Father brings glory to the Father because Jesus demonstrates the Father as worthy of obeying. This is what Jesus means when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified and he will glorify the Father. He goes on to say, if God is glorified in the Son, God will also glorify the Son in Himself and glorify Him at once. Just as Jesus glorifies the Father in going to the cross, God glorified Jesus in and through the cross. God vindicated the obedience of the Son both in and through the crucifixion. God, by His sovereign action, publicly testified during the crucifixion that Jesus was both the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, sent to, by God to his people, and the incarnate Son of God. God, through the working out of the public display or drama, if you will, of the crucifixion, portrayed his Son as the King of the Jews. 
the Christ, the anointed one. But he also portrayed the son who was raised up on that cross as the son of God. He made it known to the people who were there observing that God just died. In John 19, 19 through 20, John records that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. Do you see what God's doing? He put the Rosetta Stone over the cross. This is my son. This is the anointed one, the one who I have set on my holy hill. And Jesus, who throughout his earthly ministry was asked by the Jews, tell us plainly, are you the Christ, as we read last week? Jesus is portrayed as the Messiah in the crucifixion in such a sovereign way that Pilate, who would not defend him, was the very agent that the Father used to publicly say to the nation, that was the Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. He's the anointed one who was supposed to sit on the throne of his father David, and you have rejected him. In Matthew 27, verse 54, Matthew records how God portrayed the Son as the Son. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Roman centurions, brothers and sisters, have no theology of the triune God who has a son who comes and dies in the place of sinners. If they would have recognized who the son was and then looked at the cross again, and they did not reveal that to themselves. God sovereignly glorified the son's obedience in the cross and testified that he is the Messiah and the son of God. God likewise gloriously vindicated the Son by raising Him from the dead in three days, which we celebrate every Lord's Day. Still further, God glorified the Son by what He did through the cross, not just in the details of what happened at the crucifixion, but what God used the crucifixion to do. In Colossians 2, 11, or excuse me, 13 through 15, we read, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did, how did, what was nailed to the cross? Christ was nailed to the cross. And Paul says to the Colossian church that God took the legal demands and nailed it to the cross. The guilt that was belonging to the saints, all of those who are a part of God's glorious church, all of that guilt and shame was borne by the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. What a glorious thing God has done. Jesus is saying, I'm going to glorify the Father through my obedience. And if I glorify the Father, the Father will also glorify the Son. And He did that. He showed Him as Messiah. He showed Him as the Son. But He also used the crucifixion to cause the Son of God to become the mediator and the true atonement for God's people. 
Knowing all that is going to take place and that the disciples could not drink this cup, Jesus reminds them that he will soon depart. Brothers and sisters, all that we've just examined, all that the mystery of God which was hidden from ages and has now been presented through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ knew all of what would take place, all of the implications of the cross, all of the actions at the cross. Jesus knew what would take place, and therefore he says to his disciples, you won't be able to make it with me here. You won't be able to follow me where I am going. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. I want to read that again. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is not loving one another a summary of the law of God? When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he continued, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So how can Jesus say that he's giving them a new commandment? Because he said, you need to love each other. If you love your neighbor as yourself, how can this possibly be a new commandment? The reason it's a new commandment is it's a new commandment because it's new at its core, and it's new through its example. The law that was given through Moses was God's perfect requirement of righteousness. There was nothing wrong when Jesus summarized the law of God as loving your neighbor. It perfectly outlined how a man must live before God to be God-pleasing or to be righteous. God's law expressed his ways and his nature, and therefore, in the light of man's weakness and sin, it showed that no one was righteous. Jesus came as the perfect embodiment of the law, and he fulfilled all of its demands, himself being its author as regards his divinity. As God himself, Jesus wrote the law, and coming as a man, he fulfilled the law, being a perfect representative, the true man who lives out God's ways and God's heart. Therefore, when Jesus calls this a new commandment, he's able to point to his own fulfillment of this law as the new motivation for keeping the law. When the law was given through Moses, there was no example, no incarnate example of someone who could keep that law. It was the perfect requirement of righteousness, and yet all had sinned and fallen short of the glory. Therefore, when those who were of Israel were receiving the law, they only, the only thing that they could take away from the law is, we can't do this. And they promise God, everything that was written, we will do. They, they implicate themselves. They testify against themselves. This was the point of the law. It was to point forward to one who would fulfill. And therefore, when Jesus calls it a new commandment, he's not saying that he's repudiating or removing everything that Moses wrote. No, he is saying it's new because it's new in the way that you will obey this law. It's new because you don't just have an external code to refer to. You now are supposed to look at me. Jesus says that they are to point to or to think about his own fulfillment of loving the disciples as an embodied standard 
and reference point. It's not just an external code outside of them. No, here is one in the flesh who loved them. That's how John 13 begins, isn't it? Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to the cross. He loved them until he stopped breathing. His obedience, Jesus' obedience, the willingness of his obedience, the perfection of his obedience, and the joyfulness of his obedience is now the new standard. It's no longer just an external code without someone who has fulfilled it on our behalf. Now it's been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in meditating on his example, we are now able to imitate him. It's likewise a new commandment in the manner of our obedience. The law was given through Moses, but it did not have the ability to transform its hearers into those who could obey the law. Now in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus and Jesus gave it to his disciples so that they could fulfill the intent of the law from the heart. Not only is it new because there's an example, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, as love for the disciples, but it also is new because now there is a motivating power at work in the disciples, which was never there before the Lord Jesus was crucified and glorified. The question is, therefore, how will people know that the disciples love one another? Being transformed by His love, they are to glorify His love in their love of one another. Remember what Jesus did? He says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, or now the Son of Man is glorified. He's saying that the Son of Man is going to glorify Himself through His righteous obedience of the Father. He will glorify the Father, and therefore glorifying the Father will display externally His virtue and His pure heart. Likewise, He tells the disciples, by this all people will know that you are My disciples by your love for one another. The the act of glorification as Jesus does to the Father and the Father does to the Son is to make it visible. That's what glorifying essentially means when we think about what does it mean to glorify God. It means to display Him, to show Him as glorious, as worthy, as beautiful, as perfect. And therefore, the disciples are told by Jesus, if you truly love one another, by this people are going to notice. They're going to see it. Clearly, people will be able to see. They're not going to be given some sort of mystical sense. All people will know that the disciples are truly disciples in the public ways that the love that the disciples have in their hearts will be shown externally. What this teaches us is that our love for one another, if it is real, will always become manifest over time. It is not enough to simply say nice things. We have to spend ourselves like Christ for one another. And John, therefore, in his epistle, reiterates these commands to his hearers. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. You see how John's interacting He wrote the gospel. He also wrote the epistle, just for the record. Uh, He's interacting with Jesus' words in the gospel. He's bringing them to bear on his hearers. He's, if you wish to think about it this way, you could think about John is writing a sermon to this church that he's written this epistle to. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. How can John say that the old commandment is the word that you've heard? Well, the word that his hearers heard was the gospel. The gospel is not just the free offer of grace. There's a wonderful little, sometimes entire ideas are encapsulated in phrases. There's, there's this wonderful uh, movement of churches. I don't know how healthy they are, but I love their name because they're saying something with their name. They call themselves either the Foursquare Gospel or the Full Gospel Church. What they're trying to say is there's a great tendency in the modern era to truncate the gospel to just the offer of forgiveness. The gospel is not just the offer of forgiveness, it's the announcement that God in Christ has dismissed your trespasses and has reconciled you to Him. Come and become a new creation. And as the gospel calls you to become a new creation, it gives you a new standard to live, to live in faith after the Son of God. The gospel, therefore, is not just the free offer. It's not just the, it's not just the presentation of the possibility of forgiveness, but it's an announcement of new, blood-bought, spirit-worked obedience. What do I mean by that? In the cross of Christ, Christ did not just pay your sins. He also procured for you the Holy Spirit to be given to all those who become new creations in Him. Therefore, our standard is a blood-bought, spirit-worked obedience. The gospel simply does not offer the option of Jesus Christ, but also makes demands on those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. John argues that if you truly have been loved by God, it will result in love for others. It's going to work itself out. How can John say at the same time it is a new commandment? Well, John is meaning exactly what Jesus was meaning when he said this is the new commandment. The commandment is new in that it has a new source of motivation because the commandment is true in him. The Mosaic law was true in God, but as those who were external to the commandment, the commandment was external to them. The commandment had not been written on their hearts. The new covenant had not been fulfilled, although it had been promised, and most in Israel did not have that external commandment translated to a heart commandment, but rather they just heard it externally. This is why Paul is able to say, when Moses is read, there's a veil that lies over their eyes, over their heart, and when you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. Isn't that amazing how when Paul is prayed, Prayed for after he's blinded, it says something like scales fell off of his eyes. That's what takes place in the preaching of the gospel. Somehow, the Holy Spirit shows Christ to those who only have the external law of God, and they're able to behold Him. And therefore, because they behold Him, they are transformed to become like Him, and they become like Him by loving as He loved. It's a new commandment, according to John, because it's the way of the new heavens and the new earth. The darkness of the old world is fading away, and the light of God's new creation is beginning to shine through God's people's lives and God's people's deeds. The new heavens and the new earth are being brought to bear, even in an embryonic way, by God's people. 
because the darkness is fading and the light is shining brighter and brighter. Against those who presume to claim Christ but are actually false brothers, John warns them that those who hate their brothers are not in Christ at all. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I want you to think about that. What John is saying is if you hate your brothers, if you have animosity that never ends to your brothers, you're walking in darkness. The gospel is the free news that God in Christ has forgiven you. And right on the heels of that announcement that God in Christ has forgiven you, you are now called by God to be so transformed by His love, to be made anew, that His love which has forgiven you of a horrible million, a million horrible evil and wicked thoughts and attitudes, you are able to use that love to love others. You are able to obey God's command to forgive other people as He has forgiven you. I love the Lord's Prayer when it says, teach us, when, when the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to forgive us. Uh, excuse me, we make a petition to God to forgive us as we forgive. I don't know what Brother Andy will comment in the next few weeks on, but I believe that that means in the same manner, to the same degree, with the same level of joy, with the same immediacy, that as we keep short accounts, we do so because that's how God has done with us. That's what John is saying to his hearers. Christ purchased your obedient, joyful forgiveness of other people on the cross. He did not just pay for your sins. He purchased blood-bought, spirit-worked obedience. If your reception of His love does not flow out into loving others, John says, you haven't received His love. What a humbling thing John is writing. I never read 1 John and make it out without coming to my knees. It is a humbling letter because what it shows us is it shows us the glory of the Son and it shows us the glory of the Father and it shows us the excellence of His forgiveness to us. But it makes radical commands that we confess our sins to God and that we forgive one another from the heart. Brothers and sisters, you must forgive each other. Some questions for application. What should I do if I hate the brothers? The first thing would be to repent. First, repent by considering how much God has forgiven you in Christ. Today, this morning, you have had bad attitudes already. You have said unkind things. I have said this morning unkind things to my wife, of which I apologized almost immediately. But it was terrible. It was horrible. And I had to repent. You have harbored unforgiveness towards Christians. The reason I know you have is everyone has. The reason John wrote this letter to the churches was because all in the churches need to hear this. First, repent by considering how much God has forgiven you in Christ's crucifixion. Secondly, repent by considering how terrible descending into eternal darkness would actually be. 
John says that if you do not love the brothers, you are walking in darkness and darkness has blinded. He goes on and on. He says, darkness has blinded you and you don't know where you're going. And it would be the grace of the Holy Spirit to wake you up, to cause you to acknowledge the destiny that you're on if you continue harboring this hatred. Let's say you actually do love the brothers, but you know that your love is weak. This is probably where the vast majority, if not all of us, are. How do you grow if you know your love for the brothers is genuine, but it's really weak? What I mean by that is that Jesus says that all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. You say, I don't, I'm not harboring unforgiveness. Praise be God. Praise be to God for that. But my love for each other, my love for the church is weak. I don't, I don't have any joy in going to church. I don't have any desire to serve in the church. I don't have any desire to encourage or pray for or, or, in, or do a favor for someone else in the church. Repent by considering the love with which Christ loves us. In Matthew 12, 20, it says, concerning the son, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering flax or a smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you, do you know what this means? This means for Christians, where the flame has gone out, so to speak, and the wick is there, and there's a little burning cherry ember, and it's about to go out, Jesus doesn't lick his fingers and on that wick. What amazing love our God has for us because you are like that and I am like that from time to time. Consider how Jesus fans that flame into love. He fans that little ember. He causes it to be supplied with oil and he causes love for God to be renewed in us. Therefore, determine to find visible expressions of that love. You can do this with words you can do this with deeds, and you can do this with actions. Sometimes it just looks like saying thank you to someone for doing something. Sometimes it means saying thank you and then doing a favor in like kind, not because you feel a guilt of having received a favor, but just because you want to lavish someone else with love. Find visible expressions of love and do them. Remember how Jesus Christ walked and imitated him and imitate him. One of my favorite ideas in all of the gospels, I've read them multiple times. It, it's a good thing to do that. And as you do it the next time through the gospels, look at who Jesus turns away. He turns away the proud and he turns away those who don't want him, but he never rejects someone who wants him. It's an amazing thing. In, in the cities where Jesus heals all night at the beginning of, of Mark's gospel, it says that he healed the entire town all night. Do you think some other people from other towns came and Jesus checked their badge and said, you can't be healed. This, we're working in Capernaum today. Not at, Jesus gave of himself. Now, to be sure, he is the incarnate son of God. However, he walked as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gave of himself freely. Be liberal with your time. Be liberal with your money for the saints. Be liberal with your energy. Pray for one another. Love well. So my call to you this morning is that as Christ's disciples, let us demonstrate his love to one another, that we would truly be children of the light and that the world would see him clearly through our actions. Let's pray. So God, we ask you to come and do
what words cannot do alone. We ask that you would cause us each to behold your Son upon the cross, and that in looking to him and looking away from ourselves, we would see the manner of love with which he has loved us. We pray, Lord, that your love would transform us, help us to be your holy people who love from the heart. We ask you that your spirit would come and work in us what these words have said through John's gospel and through John's epistle. We pray that you would glorify your son and cause us to wish to glorify him as well through how we love your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.